know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Welcome everybody to The Christian Optimist. My name is Pastor Rafe Chenery, and I am uh, really thrilled to be with you again here today. Last week, we had a, a wonderful interview with a member of our church, Tom, who shared uh, much of his story about coming out of drug addiction to heroin on the streets of Chicago, how Jesus got a hold of his life, really transformed him. I think one of the things I appreciated and have heard feedback from some of you of what you appreciate about that episode was his vulnerability. And in a, in a little bit, he, he kind of brought us into a world that many of our listeners might not have much familiarity with. And for those who got the podcast who uh, do have familiarity with that world, uh, world, I know they were deeply encouraged just hearing what Christ can do to a life and how he can change it. Well, I have another interview to, for you today, and that's with another member of our church, Dennis. I've been so blessed to meet Dennis over the last few months as he's been at our church. Uh, Dennis uh, wrote a wonderful book called Glorified Rubble that tells his story and uh, a little bit about how Christ really changed him. And his story, uh, Tom's last week was about uh, his drug addiction, but Dennis's story uh, really revolves around a different topic, and that is around the topic of homosexuality. And uh, I have been so blessed getting to talk to Dennis and hear his heart for how God has changed him, how God has worked in him, how God has given him um, just a great desire to honor Christ with his story and uh, and all that God's doing in his life. And so, Dennis, I'm thrilled to have you here today. Uh, we are, as usual, in my kind of makeshift studio here in my, in my office. Not, sorry, I don't have some kind of cool studio at the top of the John Hancock building to invite you to, but uh, we're here, and uh, I would love to start today with uh, just kind of opening up to you. We're going to go to a number of different routes in our conversation today. I think we'll end up talking some theology, some history. I think at some point, I, I think we're going to be talking a little bit about Karl Marx and his role in this, people like uh, Sigmund Freud and their role in this as well. And we can talk about culture, but I'd love for our listeners to kind of be brought into your story. And so I'm just going to open up to you. Can you kind of take the first half of our time together and share who you are and uh, and uh, tell us about your life and what God's done in your life? Well, thank you. Um, the publisher uh, of my book, Westbow Press, uh, required that I use a pen name because of the topic of homosexuality and how volatile that is today. And also because I really take a look at LBGTQ and uh, its attack on God's ordinances. And also, I also uh, look at and explain where much of their fodder comes from, uh, what what they believe and why they believe it and how that's crept into culture. And it comes through Sigmund Freud, which I will explain later. First, I want to say that <clears throat> um, I don't want anybody to think or to feel sorry for me because what I'm going to share, it's kind of tragic, but it also is interwoven into God's salvation, Jesus' salvation, how he never leaves us and how he can take even our sin, which sounds crazy, but he can and work it out for our good and for his glory, because through it, we learn his grace and his redemption. So um, the name that 
uh, Westboro required uh, that I took for my pen name is my grandfather's name, Patrick Laporte. I'm half Italian and half German, but trust me, the German uh, must be in my big toe because it didn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have a ongoing uh, some kind of duel between the two of us cooking our uh, our family tradition spaghetti sauce. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I love having people over to eat. Okay, um, the the premise of my what I want to explain is really um, is really I think can be taken from uh, Judges six twenty five through twenty six, and it's an amazing story how God told Gideon to not, to tear down the altars of Baal, and we know from history that most of Baal worship was in, was entrenched in sexuality of all kinds. And then in that same scripture, he told uh, Gideon to take the Asherah, which was a symbol, I think it was more like perhaps a uh, phallic symbol, to take it, it was made out of wood, to take the wood and use it and burn it as a sacrifice unto God. So, I, I wept when I read that because I really believe the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And I, I told the Lord, Lord, take the Asherah, still, it still moves me, take the Asherah in my life. And what I've learned in spite of that, how you've never left me. And take my confusion, my misunderstanding, my rebellion, my sin. Take all that, Lord. Take the Asherah in my life and use it as a sacrifice unto you for your glory, for your holiness, Lord. Because what I've learned recently is that um, your, his holiness, everything stems from his holiness. Mm-hmm. His wrath, his mercy. Wrath is just hatred from sin because of his holiness. So I just told the Lord again, I, I told the Lord, use this as a sacrifice unto your holiness, Lord God, to who you are, and to reach other people, to, to educate the church as to how to deal with this sin of same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. And also Hosea 4.6 really struck me. Um, the Lord is saying, my, my people perish due to lack of knowledge. And so in the Old Testament, his people were the Jews, I mean, the Hebrews. In the New Testament, born-again people are his people, his church. And Rafe, you looked up that word in Hebrew. Would you tell us what that is, uh, perish or destroyed? And the word in that verse is dama, dama. Yes, and I looked it up too. Previously, I thought that meant to perish was to go to hell. But that word is cease. And what was the other? You can use it in many ways, it can, Rafe. It can, so most words have a range of meaning, but yeah. it can mean to destroy, to pause, to cease. It has kind of a range of meaning. Yeah. And in relating this to my own life, I didn't know how to move forward in my Christian growth because of same-sex attraction. I was perishing. Not that I was going to hell or that I was thumbing my nose at God. I just did not know how to deal with it. And then Jeremiah 6.14 explains why. And I know this is going to sound harsh, but it's really the truth. Um, The Lord told the leaders of Israel, the, the priests, the teachers, the rabbis, whomever those people were, that you have healed my people's wounds only slightly. And that's what has happened, I believe, not only to Christians, born-again believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, but I think it goes across the board. And I, and to, and I know this is going to sound harsh, but for some reason, and I, we have talked about this, Rafe, um, there's been a lack of, of, of desire for theology 
and it's been replaced by a therapeutic so-called gospel. How I can feel good going to church, how Christian music makes me feel good so I won't be threatened when I hear the gospel. And also, it's almost got got confined to this type of God who wants me to feel good, who wants me to prosper, and and a God of love, which he is a God of love, but he's so much more than that. He's a God of holiness, justice, righteousness, wrath, wrath, vengeance. All those things are a part of God. And so how can we really love God if we don't know who he is, if we have him stuck in just one corner of his attributes? Yeah. That verse you use from Hosea, I use when I teach systematic theology. Uh, so my people perish for lack of knowledge of God's word, lack of knowledge of God. And you're right. If we, if, if we make God in our own image, so, so if we say this is who we want God to be, we want him to affirm these things about us, whether it's something about sexuality, whether it's something about gender, whether it's something about our ideology, our vision for justice, you name what that is. If we say we're certain God is what we want him to be. What we've done is we've made God in our image and we've committed idolatry and uh, we haven't worshiped the one true God. The, The role of a follower of God is to look at God as he's declared himself to be in all of his perfection, his holiness, his majesty, his perfection, his eternality, his immutability, and then to arrange and organize our life according to that standard. And I think you've gotten after that. So, Tell us. Well, I mean, those are wonderful verses. Well, but, but and, and, and this is all building up to, I will tell you this, but this is really important to me to get this across. Um, up until about four years ago, and when I began writing the book, I was introduced on YouTube to Rosaria Butterfield. And she is a former uh, gay activist, a brilliant college professor at Syracuse University, and she came to Christ about in about nine, in the late 1990s, and she's now married and to a, a pastor's wife, and I've actually visited them in their home in North Carolina. She's married to Kent Butterfield, and she, although I understood about homosexuality coming out of of our Adamic nature, she just really crystallized it, and we're going to talk about that later. I want to talk about that later, but that. That got me to want to write about my own life. So I started writing this book more like a memoir to me. Mm. And God taught me as I went. And I'll explain this later. I cried out to him. I said, Lord, I have been trying to find a healing to make me not want to be, not to erase my same-sex attraction for decades, and so have a lot of other people, not only with same-sex attraction, but I have so many friends, Rafe, who I respect in the Lord, who are looking for this, like this cosmic grace that somehow is going to, like osmosis, get into their flesh and remove the desires and keep them from, from sinning. I mean, it's prevalent out there because they, they, we don't understand what's happened to us in the new birth and how that residue of, same, of, of what I call original sin rubble, what we've inherited from Adam still plays in our lives. And, and so when I cried out to God, I said, God, I'm, I'm tired of going to counselors. I've had demons cast out of me. I blamed it on my mother. I blamed it on how I was raised. And None of it's worked. I'm still back to where I am in ground zero, and I'm tired of it, Lord. Mm. That's what started me. Well, what's interesting is you, you, you could take that 
with almost any sin. I think whatever the sin is, I think people go in cycles of sin where they they just get to almost the end of their rope and they realize there's nothing I can do to, to stop myself from this particular sin. Um, and I, I deal, you know, a lot of times when I'm counseling young men and they're, they're struggling with pornography, yeah. it's the same thing. Heterosexual, homosexual, whatever it is, they're struggling with this, some kind of sexual perverse addiction. They can't, they can't stop it. Yeah. And, uh, and the issue is they're, they're doing everything out of their own strength and their own might. Right. And plus, I just didn't have a, a good foundation on who I was in Christ. I didn't understand. We'll talk about this later. So get, get us backwards. Yeah, yeah, we're okay. jump, I think okay. we're jumping ahead to the end we, of the story. We are, we are. But I would love for you, tell us your story. I will. So I was, so anyway, that, that got me to write the book. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, I was raised a good little Italian-German boy in Toledo, Ohio. I never remember not believing in Jesus. And I loved him in my own way. Uh, I was an altar boy. And if any of you were an altar boy and know the terror of not being able to, to get that last candle lit before Mass, then you know, you know what I went through. Altar boy in the Catholic Church. Yeah, in the Catholic Church, yeah. And I went to Catholic grade school and high school. Um, and if you'd have asked me, did I believe Jesus was the Savior? Yes. Did I believe virgin birth? Did I believe that the, the Bible was the Word of God? Yes. But I never knew what it meant to be born again. Mm. And there was a part of me that was terrified of God. I don't know if they still do this, but it, 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 in the Catholic Church at that time, there's a cycle, what they call epistles, and they're taken from Scripture. And around Thanksgiving, that time was set apart to talk about the end of the world, and I would get sick to my stomach. I didn't want to go to Mass because God, it so terrified me that God was coming. It was, it was incredible. Mm. So what happened was um, when I was 14, I had a sexual encounter with a man who was 21. Oh. And it wasn't, it wasn't sodomy. It wasn't like penetration or anything, but there was enough that... I had been like a B-plus, almost an A-area student. I went into my sophomore year, and it was like when that happened, it was like my will, the very core of who I was, was ripped out of me. I began to stutter. Uh, My mother had emotional and mental problems all of her life, even almost to the point when she died in 1985. Shock treatments. She was manic depressive, more depressed than manic. Time after time, I still can remember the, the, the horror of going up to the psych ward and, and um, hearing the chains, and, and they were padlocked, and then being led into there and seeing... These people walking around in zombies, like zombies from their drugs, and the floating cigarette smoke. It was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And then I would see my mother, you know, not somebody's mother, my mother, like a zombie, you know. And so, and then she would come back and get better, back and forth, back and forth. It was just, it debilitated our family. So, when, I've spent uh, time, I've, I've spent some time on psych wards like that. You know. And it is, uh, it, it, it is, I mean, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is one of the great films ever made, yes. but also it, uh, it does depict what it's like in those places. Right. And it's, it's pretty intense. Right. And so, I don't, I can only say that Satan just, just devastated the interior of my life, my brain, my emotions, my identity. You know, uh, I, I want to just pause there for a quick second. I think that's worth just lingering. 
14 years old. 14. You have a homosexual encounter with somebody. I've read, I mean, and I've read your, that, that part of your book. Uh, it was someone whom you trusted. It was someone whom your parents, I assume, trusted to some level. You were traveling with them. And, um, and I think, and, and to look at the devastation that came on your life, I mean, developing a stutter, that there were physical manifestations of the wrongness that had taken place in your life that were coming out that were coming out in you. And, and I, you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but just to make a quick commentary here, we are living in an age that is doing everything they can to sexualize children. Yes. Um, and 14 is actually older than what a lot of the first sexual encounters a lot of young children are having at this point is. And hardwired into the human experience is this innocence of childhood that where when that gets robbed in some way when that get whether it's through something like what you experienced or you know all people experience all kinds of hardship in life when they're, when they're kids but when that gets robbed in some way that has huge effects it it has physical effects on a person but it also has effects on your mind it has effects on your relationships it can it can bring all kinds of spiritual warfare into your family's life you're probably bring bring it back home with you and so yeah i just i think that's worth just thinking about in terms of you know, the need we have to care for our children, protect them. So I, I apologize. I get back you know, to I right where you were. You're right. But I think what I need to, I need to preface that, that is not what birthed homosexual desires in me. I, as far back as I can remember, I can remember being attracted to the male body. Mm. It was just there. So when these LBGT kids, cute kids say that they, that's, they're born that way, without a biblical worldview, they're telling the truth. And then we come along and say, that's not you. And we'll talk about that later. That's why they get really angry. They've tried their best to try to reconcile this in their lives. And without Christ and without a biblical worldview, they have this semblance of peace. They're in a gay community that loves them, that can be themselves. And then we come along and say, that's not you. You're going to hell. Mm-hmm. So that I'm not saying that what they feel is right, but it's, it's, it, it's, the lost, its original sin in their lives. And so I can remember when my mother would get like Montgomery Ward uh, catalogs or Sears, you know, when I was like 10 or 12 or whatever, getting to the point where I was feeling sexual, whatever. Well, although I felt that before too, at a very early age. And I was drawn to the women's foundations, you know, the, the girdles, and uh, no, to the men's and not the women's. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and, and it wasn't that I thought I'm going to do this. It just was there. So when that encounter with that guy, he did not rape me. I mean, what he did was wrong because he was 21. I consented because it had been there already. And that continued through high school. I hated that guy. And, but at the same time, I enjoyed the sex. And so now in that, while you're in high school, you're, uh, you're, you're experiencing experiment. I don't know what the right word there is experimenting or, or kind of engaging more into your same sex attraction, uh, with other men. No, 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 just him. Oh, it was just with him. Oh yeah. So yeah. that kept going all through high school. Well, yeah, but, but it, it was never, yeah. Up until about maybe, maybe my junior year. Wow. And, and I don't want to go into it because it's ugly, but yeah. it, it was very clandestine and it was, you know, there was no, re- nothing like romantic feeling. It was, t- it was, it was just disgusting. And I want to go, I don't want to go through, I don't want to get into those details. But what happened 
too, I think that this needs to be said. I had a girlfriend when I was 14, um, Paulette. I'll never forget Paulette. And we, I was a competitive roller skater, which is just like ice. We just don't – roller skating is not as well-known. But everything you do on ice, the triple axles, the dances you do on roller, and it's a lot cheaper <laughs> than, than ice, but it's not as prominent. She was a skater, and I just had that innate ability. I was a – from the from, – from the onset. So she was going to be my partner. And um, I can remember her, my parents would take us on dates. Her parents would take us on dates and I'd steal a kiss here and we'd go for a walk in the park. And I loved her perfume. I loved her soft skin, you know, and it was that natural attraction. And the more that this progressed with this guy, um, the attraction for her waned. And you know, it's, Jesus was very clear where he said that men love the darkness more than they love the light. And in, in Proverbs, it says that bread eaten in secret is sweet. So, and so there's something about that darkness, that eroticism with this guy that was much more stimulating than the natural, natural attraction that I had f- for Paulette. Mm. And so that darkness became fodder for me there was something about the darkness that i liked and i i just was thinking about this more today you know it talks about the bible talks about taking pleasure in wickedness there is a pleasure in the darkness that we that is really an affront toward god but i wasn't realizing that that was really enmity against god and my flesh the darkness the devil whatever you want to say was taking pleasure in that and so there is a pleasure in wickedness, and that's what that is. It's the pleasure of being in the darkness. Wow. Wow. It's interesting. You said something a minute ago. It made me think of a conversation I had with a friend of mine who, um, he's same-sex attracted, and um, I was, we were just having a conversation about this in the church, and he, he said, you know, you know, he said, I'm same-sex attracted, is what he said. And then he said, but if I had lived 200 years ago and— what what would have been expected of me is that I would have found a found a wife, just kind of, and gone on with my life and got married and had kids and you know I would have these thoughts from time to time that I would not quite know what to do with probably no one would talk to them I wouldn't have anywhere to talk about them, but I would would have been in a marriage with a woman and had kids and I probably would have been fine with that. That was the first time I'd ever heard anybody say that. Does, does that? What do you think about that? Is that a strange perspective? Or, no, but can, that is a really good question. When when you when you get, I mean, a good thought when we get into my testimony. Okay, okay. That, all right. that fits, all right. save, save that question for later. Go, fit, go back to where that you were. That fits right in. So this is what I want to say. So, um, then there th- that did no no. I'm I'm sorry. That did move into other anonymous sexual encounters with men after that point, especially when I started to drive, and so the more that these took place. And how, it's so hard to say this, to explain. It was like I had a lobotomy. I did not really understand what I was doing. Mm. If you would have asked me, what is a gay community? I had no idea. What is a gay man? No idea. Uh, I, when I was in high, I must have been a junior or senior, my football buddies. and I, Anyway, we went, we went to a gay bar in Toledo, this seedy, horrible place called The Scenic. We, we, had, we, we wore our, our dad's fedoras. We had sunglasses and trench coats. And we went there to make fun. And I'm sitting there, and it was the first time, Rafe, that I saw two men dance with each other. I was so repulsed 
and also attracted, so sexually aroused. I, I didn't know. I didn't. I could, it didn't make sense. Mm. And so, so anyway, it seemed like the more that I got into this, and the darkness took a deeper hold on my life. You know, those practices. Sin is at the door, and this desire is for you. That's that scripture is not just you sin once and it's going to leave you. No, the more you sin, the more it's embedded in you, and the more it becomes cemented into you, and the, and the darker you live, the more darkness you live in. So my attractions for women, and I dated the homecoming queen. I remember one time, not too long ago, a buddy of mine from high school, he said, man, I thought you were Mr. Casanova. You dated all these girls. I never told him the truth, you know. But I, yeah, I dated these girls, but I wasn't attracted to them sexually. What I had felt for... Paulette almost completely left. I mean, I could tell a beautiful girl, you know, and I had encounters with girls later on, uh, sexual encounters, but it it all fell short of the of the eroticism and the intensity of same sex sex. Now, all of this during this whole time of high school, your uh, your original kind of I, I I I'm I'm hesitant to call it Christian upbringing, but like your sense of God that you had when you were a little boy, your sense of Christ that you had of your little boy, even though you didn't understand the born again experience yet. Um, where was that? It's a good good question. When it came to women, I mean, I was I was trained by my dad that a woman is special, and I. I really believed that sex with a woman was was only for marriage. And so I had this respect for women. I believed that they had to be treated tenderly and 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 I think that the girls liked that when I dated them. The homeless and, and so then there was the other I mean, I was conscious of sin and I know this sounds crazy, but because I could not get a rationale or a vision of what homosexuality really is or a homosexual community, I didn't think about it. I mean, if you would have asked me, was it sin? I would have probably said yes. But here was my life with my high school friends, and I was really popular, and hanging out and and dancing and and, and then dating all these girls. And then there was this other part of me, the zombie that I didn't, I mean, really like a zombie. Yeah. And um, so then my last year in high school, my last quarter in high school, I, uh, Father Beauregard at Central Catholic High School in Toledo failed me in senior religion. You know, I've come to not, not, not like religion anyway, but anyway, but anyway, he, and he should have. And so my last quarter, I did not graduate. I got to walk with the kids in commencements. I got a blank piece of paper. Nothing. Now, what had been almost a 90 average as a freshman, I graduated D minus, minus, minus. There were only three kids lower than I. Wow. So what, now what happened when I was a sophomore, I need to go back. After that happened to me with this man, and it's somewhere into my sophomore year, my mom's locked up in a mental ward. Rafe, I didn't decide this is what I was going to do, but I took a bus. I had to take had to take a bus from her home to Central Catholic. I had downtown had to change the bus and get, you know get the, there it was all city buses. One day I just stayed on the bus, and I didn't go to school. One day turned into two days, three days, a whole month. I I was truant from school. Wow. 
I would come back to school and back home and sit in the basement um, and just sit there like a zombie. I would read a little bit or I'd ride on buses all day long. It was a miracle. I never was abused, you know. And one day, Dad came home from work early and school finally called and said, you know, your son Dennis hasn't been in school for a month. And he said, you're crazy. He goes every day. No, no. Anyway, he found me walking around in downtown Toledo. I got in the car. He took me to school. Now, Rafe, if that would have been today and and the counselors would have seen that I was an, almost an honor roll student, now failing, stuttering, skipped school for a month, they would have done intervention. Wow. But not in 1962. Mm-hmm. I was put in penalty hall for like three months after school. I was punished. And my dad, I think because of the, the pressures of his life and my mom's illnesses, he never brought it up again, Rafe. He never took me to counseling. He never brought it up again. And so it was... And so that only got worse and worse and worse and worse. So I I graduated in 1964. In 1965, my sister Rachel met a a Baptist couple at a New Year's Eve party. And Dolores uh, led my sister to Christ. Um, My sister noticed something unique about them, and she mentioned it. She says, well, you know, you guys are special. They started out at the party. And Dolores said, it's because we know Jesus personally. And my sister was offended being Catholic. She said, well, you <laughs> must be awfully good to know someone like him. And then Dolores said, no, we're sinners saved by grace. That really threw Rachel over the top. She had no idea what they were talking about. They became lifelong friends. And Dolores was very smart. She said, let's have a good time at this party and let's meet for coffee. Three months later, my sister knelt in Dolores, I'm going to start crying, in Dolores's kitchen and gave her life to Jesus and began praying for me. Wow. And so... Um, I love that detail. And began praying for me. Yes. How many... Oh, I pray. <laughs> Hold on. So I knew she was going if to... If you just bu- heard a little twinkle, I pressed a button on the podcast machine <laughs> that added a little twinkle there. And maybe that's what's needed for the sister was praying for you. How many people's stories, uh, there's someone praying for them yeah. for all this time and they didn't even know it. Yeah. Well, you know, I knew she was going to Bible studies. I, I wanted to go. I was not opposed to the Bible. So n- now that was in March of 66, May 1965. This is really powerful. I, I got up on a Saturday morning, like I always did, and I went main, it was a beautiful May morning, and I made my way to the kitchen to get to, the, to eat breakfast. To, to get to the kitchen, we had to walk through the dining room, and there was a big mirror over the buffet that my mother had. I looked into the mirror, and Rafe... I, for the first, just to comb my hair, I immediately was drawn to my eyes, and I saw this darkness emanating from me. That It, it terrified me. I really believe somehow the Holy Spirit let me to see that the corruption, the, the dead, whatever it was. I turned to my dad, and I was terrified. I said, Dad, I think I need a psychiatrist. He was sitting in the, in the living room, and he just told me, oh, you just need a good swift kick in the you-know-what. Well, so much for Pop. So I turned around and looked at the mirror. And there in that mirror, this really happened, superimposed over my face was a light bulb. And it blinked, G-O. Now, again, I didn't say I got to get to God. It was like a force. Did you say that was a vision? Without a doubt. Wow. Without a doubt. And so I got my prayer book and my rosary, the best that I knew how to do, and I knew that they cleaned the church on Saturday morning, and it was less than a block away. I ran there, ran to the communion rail, threw myself on on the communion rail. And for the first time, I really prayed, 
from the pages of my heart. I, and but it wasn't my sin. It was God help me. I'm a mess. For an, half an hour, I prayed and wept. Got up and left, and it was over. About two months later, my sister wakes up one morning. The presence of God is all over her. She's the first thing out of her mouth is save my brother, Denny, save my brother, Denny. She was in deep intercession the whole day. Save, save Denny, save Denny. But when her husband got home from work, she knew she had to come and talk to me. She got my, my, her, um, her middle son, uh, Dean, they got in the car and she was a new believer. So she bought, you've seen these little gospels of St. John, those little booklets. She brought it with her thinking, I'll give it to Denny. And that way, if he argues with me, I can, you know, maybe he'll read it. So she got into an argument with dad and he was calling her a holy roller. We're Catholic. So she gave me the booklet and I just, I had, I was working construction. It was, a, I had, had a date that night. So the last thing I wanted to hear was the, their argument. You're, so, you're about how old at this point? I'm 20. Okay. Uh, I just turned 20. And so I took it to get out of the fray and went up in my bed bedroom. I'm laying down on the bed and I'm going through this and I, I Oh, I've heard this before in church. You know, when it got to John 10, the good shepherd, there was that famous illustration of the, the with Jesus with the lamb on his shoulders. Now again, brave. It wasn't that I thought I got to get up and do this. See, I really believe in election. So that's a whole other thing. So, and I never heard about accepting Christ. I just got up from my bed, and I knew that I had to find Rachel. Now, Rachel's in the kitchen weeping, thinking that she had failed God, getting ready to go home. She hears me pounding down the steps, and she goes, "I'm Denny's going to lambast me. Rafe, when I turned that corner and went into the, to the kitchen, I said, Rachel, I love you. And Rafe, when I said, I believe the gift of of repentance. I mean, I felt like I was being torn in two, but in, but it was it was a good feeling at the same time. I just felt like I had been just completely exposed, and the insides of me had been ripped open, and every sin sins just passed before my eyes, and and for the first time, I knew that I had offended a holy God. And there's a scripture in John which Jesus says, when you see me, you behold me. And believing, I, I, I just saw this a couple days ago. I saw Jesus for the first time in my spiritual eyes. I saw him as my savior. And, and, I, and this love for him just came out of me. And I knew that he loved me. And I knew that I, was, I needed to be forgiven. But what's so crazy is because homosexuality was somewhere lost in my mind, I, I didn't even think about repenting of homosexuality. But God honored that. And so we went up, and Rachel said, do you want Christ? I said, oh, yes. And we knelt down by my bed, and I felt this thing begin, begin to lift in my legs, and I literally felt it go up my body, and when it hit my shoulders, I felt that whatever this was, demons, whatever, leave my body, and the my bedroom became like the Holy of Holies. To this day, I have never felt the presence of God like I did that morning wow. with my sister. So there's Rachel and what I. What a faithful sister praying for you. Oh, and so I, I got up, and I, I don't even remember doing this. Rachel told me. I, got, I went to a phone, and I called a friend and said, I've just been saved. I had a phone in my bedroom. So I, was, I confessed it with my mouth. So that night, I went over to visit a girl that I was dating. She wouldn't let me in the door. She said, you've changed. What's happened to you? 
I said, I must have looked like Moses coming down from the mountain. <laughs> I said, I don't know. But God came into my bedroom about t- an hour ago. That's all I can tell you. I mean, and, and so she said, she let me in and she said, you sound like this guy named Lou Vassaturo. I knew less Lou Vassaturo because we, we worked for the same department store. I worked downtown and he worked uh, in, in the suburbs. And he had been witnessing to her. She said, about Christ, she said, you need to see Lou. I called him the next day. I went to see him at work, and I tried to explain what happened. He said, you've been born again. I said, I've been what? <laughs> and he, he gave me my first Bible. And, and uh, Ray, f- from that minute on, I would sit and read the Bible for five hours a day. One day, my father came up, took the Bible, and threw it across the room. He said, you're 20 years old. You're not normal. You should be reading Playboy. <laughs> I just could not get enough of the word. So he invited me to go to this church, and I'm now Catholic. I had never been in a church that was not Catholic because I believed non-Catholics were going to hell, and it was a mortal sin to go into a non-Catholic church. So he, so he said, well, if you don't want to come on Sunday, why don't you come to the prayer meeting on Wednesday? So I felt a little safer. So I went, and it was the Christian Fellowship of Toledo. It was an old union hall. And so I walked up, and there were no icons. It looked like a union hall. And so I'm thinking, this is church? And then, now you have to, this is going to make you laugh. What's funny is, Dennis, our church meets in a union hall right now. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) How the Lord has a sense of irony in things. (laughs) I know. It's a wonderful, it's a a beautiful building, but it's a union hall at the end of the day we meet in. Oh, I forgot to tell you this, too. Before, Before I got born again... There was a sign in that we to get to my house. You had a pass. A lot. It, there was other ways to get to my family home, but that was one of the ways. And it was the Church of the Open Bible, and it had a big sign: "You must be born again." And I thought, this looks like a dilapidated bank ready to be removed to for uh, for urban renewal. This I thought this is a rogue church. What are they telling me? I have to be born again. I was baptized. Eventually, that church became my home after I got saved. Wow. There was God's sense of humor. So anyway, so uh, so now now just to kind of keep us on track here. So you had this born again experience, yeah. but no one you know, no one's you haven't processed the homosexuality. You haven't processed the same-sex attraction. You don't even have the knowledge of what to do with that yet. So you're still experiencing all those same attractions. You're in your early 20s at this point. Yes. So what, what, what happens from there? I'll tell you. Okay. So, um, so Luke, there was a guy at this church, Gus Yeager, who was involved with campus. He brought campus crusade for Christ to the university of Toledo. And he, it was, Personal friends with Bill Bright, uh, Gus helped to write the four spiritual laws, which are famous. So he, uh, staff workers came to to uh, to the University of Toledo. I got involved with Crusade right away. They recognized more than I did what God had done in my life. I but still, no one knew about this, and so right away I got involved in evangelism. They eventually left the campus, and I was. They came to me and said, we want you to be the student mobilization leader. I was doing all the work of a Campus Crusade staff worker while working. By the way, God took somebody who failed high school, mm-hmm. gave me my mind back the moment I got saved. I have three graduate degrees. I've been a teacher, a principal. You know, that means just it's crazy. I always say people graduated man and cum laude. I, I graduated Lordy, how come? And so which <laughs> is true. So anyway, so here I am doing all this work of Campus Crusade and occasionally having clandestine, relation, not relationships, experiences with men. 
confessing it, going coming back, not not knowing how to process it. So I was groomed to go on the staff of Campus Crusade. I never, I was the heir apparent. I never, I mean, I was going into fraternities and sororities as a college student in, pre, in preaching the gospel, and I saw people come to Christ. Yeah. And so I, I, I was sent to Arrowhead Springs for training. That was the Crusade, Crusade headquarters back in the 60s at San Bernardino. It was called the Institute of Biblical Studies. And so I was going to graduate. I never wanted to teach. I, my dream was to serve Jesus in Campus Crusade for Christ. So now still, I had never seen a gay community. So this was like 1968, I think it was. Um, on the 4th of July, we all got into our cars from Arrowhead Springs and went to the beaches of Southern California to witness. Well, my group went to Laguna Beach. Now, I'm not saying that's a, a gay beach, but that day it was wall-to-wall homosexual men in Speedos, and there was a gay bar. Rafe, I looked at these guys. I was attracted. I was mesmerized and so guilt-ridden and so hating what I was feeling. I sat down on the bench and wanted to die. There I was with my, my, uh, my four spiritual laws, and we would take the New American Standard Bible and wrap it up like it was a book and so people wouldn't be offended that it was a Bible and all that. I just sat on the bench. And when my friends from Crusade would come by, they'd say, what's the matter with you? I said, I have a migraine. Well, it was a spiritual migraine. That night when I went, we went back. You know, it's interesting just to pause there for a second. I'm thinking of how many heterosexual guys walk up to a beach filled with women, you know, wearing not many clothes and, and in their brain, no conviction over what their mind is doing. You know what I mean? Like, like, like I actually, there, there's something powerful in your story right there of you experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit over where your mind was um, over this particular sin. But how many people go to a beach on any given day and there's no conviction over where their mind is, over where their eyes are, over what? And uh, so there, there's something encouraging in that moment of, of having that Holy Spirit filled conviction. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, and the Holy It's Spirit- different, but at the same time, it's not. There, there's, the Spirit was doing something inside of you. Well, Satan, I'm not sure that, I'm not, well, I'm sure that was part of it, but much more than that, Satan took that opportunity to just dump condemnation on me like I had never felt before. Mm. To the point I felt like I, I did have, I, I was, to the point I, I felt so condemned and so guilt-ridden and so dirty, it was, the, it was lower than what I felt before I got saved. Wow. So Satan came in there and beat my brains out with it. At the same time, I'm sure the Holy Spirit was convicting me too, but there was Satan right there because I didn't have a rationale to to process it, Mm. the fight against it. I just received it all. And so when I went back that night, and we were, we went back and we were supposed to share the people that we talked with and on the beach. I went to my room. I wanted to die. I'm not suicidal, but that's the closest closest I've ever thought about wanting to kill myself. I'm serious. And I thought, if I tell anybody, and they're going to send me back to Ohio, they're going to kick me out of Arrowhead Springs, I won't be able to go on staff. So I internalized it. Oh, Rafe, it was horrible. And so finally, I'm back in Toledo now. This is 1969. This is the fall. And I'm, I'm doing my student teaching, and I'm going to graduate, and yeah, I'm going to get my, my support raised. I sent for uh, an application to Arrowhead Springs. It finally came. I'm filling it out, and the last question asked, have you ever had homosexual tendencies? If so, please explain. 
I looked at that. I didn't know how to answer it. I was afraid to answer it. I was angry at God for not knowing, for having it on. (laughs) I was angry at everybody, you know, and I, so I, I took it and I just put it away. Think I don't know what I thought. That's it. so I kept looking at it. Two weeks later, I took it out and I said, "All right, if I'm gay, and this is bringing me face to face with something I don't understand, then I better find out who I am." My dream of serving Jesus Christ wound up in a garbage can. But you know, I look back over that. Had I gone into crusade without any processing, it would have destroyed me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So from there, um, that led me into, I had a relationship with the Christian man. Uh, I repented of that. Um, I, after that, but I still didn't understand what so was. So there, you were in this season of struggle, like trying to, like, you were just work, like trying to figure out how it worked. Like yeah. what? What is, what is all this? How do I put the pieces together? And there was no one, no one taking the time to put the pieces together for you. No, and plus I knew that was sin. Eventually, uh, I, I broke off that relationship. It's, it's, this is all in the book in detail. I went and lived with a, a Christian couple, which uh, which gave me at least a relief from that. Um, I asked a, a girl. I, I put a fleece out before the Lord, and this girl that I wanted that I wanted to marry. I said, if she's the one for me, have her in my apartment. And twenty minutes, and she came out of nowhere. God, it wasn't the Lord who answered that. She came out of nowhere. So I thought she was the one for me. Um, I thought it would it would make me normal. And so she told me she loved me, but she didn't uh, was not in love with me. So, but I still felt that God was going to change her heart. I was dating a wonderful Italian girl who loved me. I came to her and said. Um, Ellen, I can't go on with this relationship because of this fleece. And so Nancy, and then there was a guy in my prayer group who came in back of me, and he was married with kids, put his hands on the back of my body. Men don't touch each other that way. And I later found out he had issues. I was so angry at God. God, I'm trying to, re- to get rid of this, and here it is in my prayer group. Wow. And so I can remember going it was a rainy day and i went and i went to the park and i just put my fist at god i said god what is the matter with me what is the matter with you well i had gone to a christian retreat during this time in georgia and married a woman met a woman who we got into the same prayer group and there was something about her that was kind of different i wasn't sure what it was but when i got back to and she was living in raleigh when i got back to toledo um i called her I just wanted to be normal. And I said, will you come and visit me? And she said, yes. And she did. And so the, the, the people that I was running a room from knew the guy that I was involved with, but they didn't know. They thought we were just friends. He, ma- he managed a department store in Toledo. My, the woman that I was running and her husband that I was running this room from took her to this department store and she met him. And they got introduced. So I came home from teaching, and she's on the on the on the on the, on the in, in the back porch, sitting there, very quiet. She said, "I met his name is Bill. Bill today has he ever had a homosexual? Um, uh, um, is he gay?" And nobody ever asked that to me. And then she said, "Have you ever felt that you do you think it's possible to love somebody of the same sex?" I by over spiritualizing it and not processing it, the only thing I said was, "It's demonic." No, it's not possible. Well, she had the integrity to tell me about her relationship. She was going through a carbon copy relationship back in Raleigh. 
but she had worked through it. So within two months, we got married, thinking that God brought us together. We didn't know each other. We didn't love each other. It, 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 it resulted in she going back into lesbianism, which she still is. And it, it, it catapulted me to just giving up. And from there, I got into the gay community. Now, when I say I got into the gay community, I kind of kept myself apart from it in Toledo because it was basically drag queens and transvestites, and it was not, not what I liked, and alcoholics. I had a fraternity brother who I had no idea was gay. I found out he was. He had moved to Chicago, and he said, why don't you come and visit me? So I did in, at the Christmas of 19, 1977, immediately. A whole world opened up to me I didn't know existed. I was meeting lawyers and doctors. I had, uh, I'm talking, one of my best friends became uh, uh, one of the city managers of one of the wealthiest uh, suburbs in Chicago. These were, these were professional people that wanted to be my friend. So that just drew me in. So after graduate school in 1979, I moved to, to Chicago for one reason, to get involved with the gay community. And I, I got a job with the Chicago Public Schools as a teacher. Now, crazy as this may sound, I always knew it was sin. And somehow in the back of my mind, I knew I was going to get out of it. So I had a partner. I loved every minute of it in Chicago. And then it came to a point where after a couple of years, I, I began to miss Jesus. And I just knew that I could not have both. And so my sister, the last thing she said to me, she died with brain tumors in 1981. She said, Denny, you're never going to be happy to come back to Jesus, and I know you're, you're involved in homosexuality. I came back to Chicago on Amtrak thinking about how God had used me in Campus Crusade, about my conversion, and I began to miss Jesus. So uh, Rachel died, and uh, at, her, at her funeral, I went, and they were testifying to Rachel's faith with God. And Rafe, I felt like I knew I had traded the holy for the profane. I felt so unclean. And so I came back again uh, on Amtrak, and I got home, and I found out that my partner had, had some brought somebody back, and I said, I'm tired of this. So there was a church, Faith Tabernacle. See, this was God's sovereignty, not even two blocks from where I was living. And I knew it was it was a it was a Pentecostal church. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I was kind of charismatic, but so it was a Friday. I got into an argument with my partner in this bar, and I said, "This is it. I'm, I've had it. I've got to come back to the Lord." And so, but I didn't really want to at the same time. So, but I knew I had to. So, um, it was a Friday night, and. I think it was a rally for America for Jesus. I think it was a big movement back in uh, or back in that time, 1981. And there were people in the church, and it was open. So I went in, and there was a guy that, standing there, and I said, is the pastor there? And he said, yes. So I went into the, back to the office, and I said, you know, I'm, I want to come out of homosexuality. I thought he was going to beat me up. He just looked, he pointed his finger at me and said, your sin is not held against you. It was too good to be true. So that night, I didn't want to go back home. I stayed out all night, <laughs> got back home. My partner eventually moved out. I never saw him again except a couple times after that. So God took care of that. That, that was Friday. That Sunday, the next Sunday, I went to Faith Tabernacle. I'm sitting at the service, and I knew that I had to go to the altar to, to, re, to renew myself and in, 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 to repent. But I was afraid. I thought they were going to start casting demons out of me. So I thought, now I'll just wait, and I'll call Pastor Smith and see him next week. Well, the woman next to me touched my hand, and she said, you really need to go forward. Mm -hmm. 
and I did. So I got to the altar, and the altar worker was, I think he was from Yugoslavia. He, he didn't understand. I'm not here to be born again. I'm here to, to come out of the, I'm a prodigal. I want to come home to Jesus. The next thing I knew, I asked Pastor Smith if I could have the microphone. Now, this was a, an altar that had, it had a, a big stand high, a stage. I walked up on the stage, I took the microphone, and I confessed my sin in front of a 1,000 people. Wow. I said, I, I need to come out of home. So I, want, I want to be free from this. And he called the whole church forward. And now this is, you know, there's a Holy Ghost church and there's a Holy Spirit church. This was a Holy Ghost church, you know, where people got emotional. <laughs> so I had more hands laid on me than you could imagine. So those dear people brought me in. They loved me. They embraced me. But I still didn't understand how to deal with this. So to make a long story short, I really felt that I should leave Chicago. And I did for about eight years. Okay. And so I came back in 1991 with another degree in counseling. So I, and I come back to Chicago. I felt like I had lived in New York. I got engaged, knew it wasn't right. I wasn't ready to be married. That was really difficult because we really loved each other. But I knew I, di- I didn't want to keep her at risk. She knew about me. I had been involved in an ex-gay ministry, which we'll go into in a little bit. So anyway, so I come back to Chicago kind of afraid, but feeling still pretty, pretty strong. The men, shortly after I got back, I found that my partner had died of AIDS two weeks before I came back. Our social circle, every one of them, Rafe, had died of AIDS, except one that I knew, that wow. we knew. One of, one of my friends was a Catholic priest, died of AIDS, um, and I knew that there was a whole cadre of Catholic priests that would go to this gay bar that was real popular on Sundays after Mass. And so, uh, you know, I knew that, that that was rampant within the Catholic Church. And so, so during those periods, I, you know, it, I, I was back in church. I was at Park Community Church. I told a few people. I was struggling, trying to, to walk the walk. And... Um, and was, you know, in, in a way, kind of a leader, I suppose. I don't know. But anyway, uh, did very well, got great jobs with the Chicago schools. You know, I was, became wealthy, lived in the Gold Coast. And then I retired and came back to, went back to Toledo and um, struggling still. And then one, one day I heard the end of Rosaria Butterfield's testimony on Focus on the Family. And I didn't want to listen to the rest. I thought it was going to be another, you know, I, I was abused by men. I, I turned to women. It was, my life was a gay mess, but I thought I'm going to listen to her. So I found her on YouTube. Afterwards, I was on, on, my, on my knees praising God. She was the first person that I ever heard that equated same-sex attraction to original sin and that it was a manifestation of of that and that those feelings are real but they're not true those feelings are are feelings of the flesh and i still didn't understand all that but let's then, work through that so so yeah. help us and, and I'll, I'll bounce off you here a little yeah, bit okay, but, okay but walk through that idea that that homosexual desires are connected to original sin right if this leads up to what i believe uh, my book is a backdrop of my life to reach far, far beyond same-sex attraction. There's a lot more than I believe God wants to use this book for in my own life. And so this is going to lead up to that. I failed to, to, to mention that I had been involved in ex-gay ministries. Um, and they started about the same time, and this all fits in, about right after, about 19, in the 19, early 70s, right in the early 1970s, right after gay rights became 
uh, it just became dominant within our culture. That happened because a gay bar in 1969 called the Stonewall in New York was raided. And up until that point, the police would just kind of inter- intimidate. Well, people intimidate the people in the bars. Well, for some reason, people got tired of it. There was a huge riot. That opened the door to gay pride, gay rights. And at the same time, people like me, I, not I, but people, born-again Christians, began stepping out of the pews while gay people would step out of a closet wanting help. The church didn't know what to do with us, so a lot of those people formed ex-gay ministries. The biggest was Exodus. Right. And 40,000 people, probably worldwide. And so the ex-gay ministry that I was involved with was nothing about what my book is about. It was, it was Freudian. You need to go back and look at your damaged emotions. You need to see your relationship with your mother or your father on and on and on and on. Nothing about dealing with same sex attraction as something that is of the flesh mm-hmm. that has to be dealt with. Like as the Puritans say, mortified and put to death. So, I had done all that, got tired of it, knew it, knew it was not work, not right. And so so I thought, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to write a book about this. And maybe, I, and so I'm I, not sure why, but it, it was really my memoirs. And so that's when I, I realized through Rosaria and her teaching about original sin, this is what she said. She said, our feelings can be real but they're not true. There's forbidden love. We're, we're forbidden not to love the world. We're forbidden not to love money. So there are feelings that we're, are, we should know are forbidden because they're not under God's word. So as I wrote the book, I, I had this idea about how, how, can I, how to, can I explain how you can have a romantic feeling for the same sex to somebody who thinks that sounds insane. This one, not a vision, but I saw this in my my head, a down power line. Before Adam sinned, our spirit was connected to God. It was our modem. So all of all that God created flowed out of out of Adam and Eve. It's just because of who they are, who they were. When they The term for that is original righteousness. Yes. And it's a really important idea here is that the, uh, the, the beauty of what Adam and Eve had in the garden is we can't quite imagine it fully. It was every thought was godly, every desire, even the first motions of their heart were godly. Let me, let me read this little passage to you real quick from okay. a book I'm reading. Okay. So here's Thomas Boston, a Puritan. He says, Oh, how did light shine in Adam's holy conversation to Mm. the glory of the Creator, Mm. while every action was but the darting forth of a ray and beam of that glorious unmixed light which God had set up in his soul, while that lamp of love lighted from heaven continued burning in his heart, as in the holy place, and the law of the Lord put in his inward parts by the finger of God was kept by him there, as in the most holy." There was no impurity to be seen without, no squint look in the eyes after any unclean thing. The tongue spoke nothing but the language of heaven. And in a word, the king's son was, quote, all glorious within and his clothing of wrought gold. We can't, now now, now here's the thing, that will be returned in full at our glorification. That's what Adam had. Not even the first motion, There, there was no inclination of his heart towards any unclean or impure thing. Then he sinned. And Adam's sin, he stood as our, what theologically we call our federal head. And in him, we also receive the, uh, the due 
uh, vengeance that is required of God as a result of his law. God has wrath upon man because of our sin, and we've inherited a sinful nature. So when you talk about original sin, we're not talking about the first sin a person commits. We're talking about the sin that Adam committed and our inheritance of a corrupt nature, a nature that thinks wrong, that feels wrong, that relates wrong, that that misunderstands God. Every part of us has been wholly corrupted in our nature. And so... I wanted to I wanted to give some of that context here to say who we were before Adam fell, and now who every who we are after Adam fell, and then we can talk about who we are after we believe in Jesus. But providing some context for you, right? That's perfect because I've I've often thought that the reason why Adam and Eve did not know they were naked is because they were clothed in the Shekinah glory of God, and and when that left, you know, when they sinned, that left. I don't know, but anyway, so. So in what I talk about in the book is that, you know, it's when that was connected, just like a power line, when it's connected to its source and it's, it's going to its right destination, it's not corrupted. And if that falls, if it breaks, and I've seen down power lines shake and, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of electricity still in there and they're very dangerous. And I realized that's, to me, that was a good description of our fallen nature. Now, Satan can't create anything new. It, it, that, so that down power line, our old nature is is everything is there in there. It's God in the original design, but now that we're not connected to God, so it flowed naturally like it did through Adam and Eve. It gets us into big time trouble, and we're naturally pulled away from God. Okay, and so I also the other day got thinking about too about a thumb drive. I put a, a thumb drive into a computer and it came up corrupted. the The internal working of that thumb drive was still there, but but the internal workings of it was they were corrupted, yeah. and that's our nature. So how okay, let's say you're counseling a young man who's experiencing same sex attraction. Let's say someone's listening to this on our on, on this podcast right now and they're experiencing same sex attraction. They've become a follower of Jesus. They don't quite know what to do with these feelings they have. How how do you counsel that young man? Oh, boy, I, this, this might take another. It just let me put this briefly. What's, what, where I am today um, is, is because I finally understood that sin is not necessarily what we do. It's a state of being. It's a condition. And what flows out of that condition is the corruption of our nature, the corruption of our feelings. I heard someone once say, we sin, we, we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Right. <laughs> the, it's, the, it's the corrupt nature that comes first. That's the wellspring from which our sin flows out of. And that's, that's what it means to be born again, because we're, we're taken out of Adam, that dead nature, to be born again is to be risen from the dead. Yeah. And, and to be risen and given new life in Christ. Now, here's the rub most a lot of Christians don't understand that when that happens you're a new creature in Christ you're taken out of Adam you're no longer under the the dominion of the control of your old nature but what's left over is the residue of that damage that's still in your flesh and in your mind and the heart is not just you know to believe with your heart is not a heart that beats it's our, our our whole being so when we get born again it's just not our heart jesus come into my heart our whole being is changed in the sense that we are a new creature we have a, we have a hunger for god we have the holy spirit we can understand the bible but there's still 
that residue. And that's what it means to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. Personal sanctification is working out that, that brokenness that came with us, that, that damage that we received by inheriting Adam's nature. And David said that I was born in sin. Yeah. And, and my, my mother birthed me in iniquity. She didn't have an extra affair. She was born, he was born in sin. He was conceived in sin. Conceived in sin. And, and, and this is important. So what you're describing is the, the new nature, but the residue of the old nature that remains in the follower of Jesus. And you said this really well. When a person believes in Jesus, they get a new nature. That's an ontological change. It's not just this pie in the sky, great, I have some new spirituality about me. No, Jesus actually changes our corrupt nature and gives us a new nature that thinks rightly, that affects rightly, meaning like our affections are changed, our relationships change. You can go through the mind. Every part of you now is new. The challenge is, is that the old nature is not completely done away with. It lurks and it creeps and it claws at us, attempting to bring us back. Oftentimes in the New Testament, Paul refers to that as the flesh. It's our old fleshly way of thinking, of feeling, of emoting, of relating, that claws at us and, and tries to, to say, behave like you used to behave before you had this new nature. And that's where a lot of the source of temptation comes from, is from our very own flesh. And so the Christian life is this battle, which is why what you said earlier, Paul very often would say, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And what's he saying? He's saying, Christ has already crucified your old nature. Now put to death the deeds, like like put them to rest. Let, let, Let them be dead. Right. which is what their true state is. Right, and what was crucified was that condition that we were in Adam. We're, we're not rebels against him anymore. We're it. his children. But the thing that really, where I am today, and have I perfected it? No, but every day, this is, this is what's so cool about this book that I've written. It's, it's as much for me, you know, obviously. And it taught me. So I'm sitting there, Rafe. I'll, I'll say, I'm getting this. I understand what Rosario is saying. You know, I know about all, you know. And I understand... I don't fully understand my my position in Christ, but Hebrews ten four think is who Hebrews ten fourteen. It says, "For by one sacrifice he has perfected for all time them that are being sanctified." Some uh, uh, versions say, "Them that are being holy." So I saw that that I for me to really deal with anybody to deal with the the flesh, they first have to realize who they are in Christ, and and so then. And that those temptations do not affect that position. Right. And Satan will, and if you don't know that, Satan's going to come in and beat your brains out. And so then I'm, I'm still praying, Lord, okay, I, I think I got this, but why, what about these feelings? What does it mean to put to death the flesh? How, how do I do this? Is it through prayer? Do I go to counseling? I've tried all that. It just became crystal clear. The moment we're born again, our will, which was dead in Adam, is made alive in Christ, and from the moment we're born again, we are, our will has been freed to choose obedience. I never saw that. I never saw that. I'm sorry, I'm pounding. I never ever. You're an Italian. You move with I, your hands. If you're hearing a thumping behind, Dennis speaks by hitting the table. Hey, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, pass the meatballs. Anyway, so uh, so I just I saw it. I saw it. I, I, two years later, I'm learning from Steve Lawson that Martin Luther had written a book about it called The Bondage of the Will. Yeah, Steve God. Lawson is a well-known preacher and pastor. 
God showed me that. Now, in the book, I talk about that, not because I got some kind of special revelation. That's cult started. Now, now wait, this. wait, wait. Bring us back, though. So yeah. the question I asked is, how are you counseling this young I'm, man? Okay, and, I'm and doing you're describing that. Okay, it. okay, okay. You, this is this is what this is what they they have to know is that because just because they're born again does not mean that they're not going to be tempted by the flesh. In the book, I call it original sin rubble, and I think with the one and that. That every every Christian has to realize that change comes through obedience, not praying to become obedient to change. That's what I had done all my life. That's what Christian counseling had taught me. That's what the ex-gay ministries had taught me, that somehow by unlocking why I feel these feelings, I was going to change. No, no, no. And another thing that opened up to me was Romans six nineteen. It says to to present this is what I will tell them to present our bodies yeah. unto righteousness, which leads to sanctification. And what is sanctification? Do I then get changed to become this raging heterosexual chasing every girl down the street, or just some former lesbian just just sit there languishing for her prince charming to come and take her to, to her her, her make believe castle? No, it's to be conformed to the image of Christ. Yeah. And so now within that context. Does that mean that the temptations go away? So, first of all, I would tell them, you have to know what you were in Adam. You have to understand original sin. You have to understand that you've been taken out of that in, in Christ. And then Romans, it's in Romans, to consider yourself dead to sin but alive unto God. So to consider myself dead to sin, and that's my old nature. That's Adam. That's not the part of me that just rebelled against God. That's not us anymore. So what I do, and I would tell them, the, it, don't be focusing on your your same sex attraction. Yeah, you got to recognize it. I did that all my life, and it, and it got me nowhere. You've got to see that you're alive unto God in the midst of that temptation. That is not who you are. Yeah. You are not a homosexual. You are a child of God, and you are alive unto God in the midst of that. I'm going to cry in the midst of that temptation. And that's how you can say no, because your will is free to say no. And when you walk after the Holy Spirit, like it talks about in Romans and in Galatians, he does the inner work. But we, our will, by choosing not to sin, that, and I had heard that before, but I never understood it was my will was equipped to do it. I thought I had a force myself and be the, I don't have the wrong idea. And all of a sudden I realized, you're right. I've been praying for grace, and I stand in grace. That's what I would tell them. We stand in grace. The work has been done. Not the, not the, the interior change, but the fact that I can choose. I'm, I'm, I'm free abil- to choose. For the first time in Christ, you have the ability to choose the good. I can, but, but, you, you're, what you're saying right now, I think, has two very important applications for us. Number one I'm sorry is— Sorry to get so Pentecostal. <laughs> It's just just zealous for the spirit. Yeah. Um, one is for the, the person who might be listening who's homosexual to, to know this truth and to, to be able to say, this is who I now am in Christ and what God's enabled me to do. And I love the line of, we're called to walk in obedience. Like, like, like we're, we're called to walk in obedience. And obedience fosters more obedience. Obe- obedience to God fosters a, a desire for obedience. It fosters a desire for a heart to be more in line with God. And it does change the affections. It changes what you desire. But I think this is also helpful for the heterosexual community totally who, same thing. who very often, and, and, and I'll apply it specifically into this conversation, although you can apply this to every temptation that any human being ever faces. If you're tempted towards alcohol, you're tempted towards reckless behavior, you, the same concepts apply. 
But I think particularly with the gay community, I think heterosexual Christians, it's kind of like we don't want to talk about it because we don't know what to say or do. And that's a, that's a shame because it puts a lot of men and women like you who have experienced same-sex attractions into this kind of like isolated, lonely spot where they have, they almost become the lepers in the community where God forbid they say they're being tempted by the old flesh. And, and for the heterosexual community to say, wait a second, wait a second, there's different categories of sin. We can talk about alcohol. We can talk about drugs. We can talk about pornography. We can talk... Homosexuality is a category of sin. It's talked about very often in the scriptures. But the affections work the same way the other ones do. We're born again to a new and living hope. We have a new ontological change in us. And yet, and yet, the old flesh will still oftentimes tempt us in many different ways. For the same-sex attracted person, it'll tempt them in certain ways. For the person who was prone to alcohol, it's going to tempt them in certain ways. And I think being able to relate on that level opens up doorways and pathways to brotherhood and sisterhood that are that just if flow. Because you and I have two wildly different experiences, and yet we have very similar experiences. Because we have the same story in Jesus of what he's done in our life, overcoming the various sins and passions of the flesh that we each had differently. Rafe, you hit it right in the head, and I know we're running out of time, but this is so important to me. I think this is almost more important than, as is important what I'm saying, what I said about in Romans, and knowing that obedience brings change, because it partners with the Holy Spirit to do the inner work. When I hear... And I love John MacArthur, don't get me wrong. But many times when he and other men like him, who I totally respect and have learned so much from, talk about homosexuality, they stop in, in that, what you said, Rome, it's in First Corinthians, and such were some of you. It leaves people like me thinking, then am I really born again? What do I do with mm-hmm. myself? So he came out with a booklet called... Um, hacking Agag to pieces. It's a metaphor for how we should deal with sin in our lives. And he said that the greatest challenge a Christian has is dealing with indwelling sin in the flesh. I talk about that in the book. I wrote that two years ago in my book, that you can't cast out the flesh, you can't counsel it away, you can't pray it away. It has to be put to death. And so the church is, if he would just come out, and other men like him would just come out and say, I don't know why we missed it, but we didn't share this. We maybe we took it for granted that you get people with same sex attraction would understand this applies to you. That would be if the church would have, the church has been silent about this. For, I don't know why, and I wish I I wish I found out. I wish I knew why. Well, I think that might flow into an interesting conversation that, that I'd like to move to. But but if we go back to that just for a second, God also does and can change affections. What I mean by that is that. Over the court, let's take yes. whatever sin anyone's dealing with. Over time, the more you walk in obedience, the desire to appease the flesh that might re- that might cl- claw onto you diminishes, right? And that's, let, what, and that's what's happened in my life. Let, I mean, even like like for example, let's say your struggle is with pornography, right? You're, you're struggling with pornography. The, I, I can't tell you how many people I know who they they had a deep. Uh, desire for pornography. They began to walk in obedience to God, pray faithfully, listen to the Holy Spirit, have accountability, but walk. They chose to mortify the flesh and to live in the Spirit. And now, years later, pornography makes them sick. They hate it. That's how I feel about my sin. And and so the, the, the affections do change. That doesn't mean that there's never a tempting thought that should that ever that, that, that ever pops into your mind now and again, because 
we're not glorified yet. But it does mean that the affections do change. The temptations will diminish on that thing the more you walk in obedience. And you'll find temptations in other areas of your life because there's still other sins that need to be mortified. Well, Rafe, I think you hit it right in the head. And that's why I believe my book, it goes far beyond my my issues or same-sex attraction. Every Christian needs to know this, what it means to walk. Now, I think this is going to sound mean. I don't want it to be, but because the church, there was some guy on YouTube, I just caught the end of it, it's some, some Christian leader, I can't remember who it was, but he said, for some reason, we have not accepted the fact that a born-again, truly, genuinely born-again believer can be attracted to the same sex. And I, 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 then it ended, I didn't know who he was. I said, you're right. The church, and in that silence, this is what it's given room to. Where did this idea from sexual, about sexual orientation come from? <sighs> I learned this from Rosaria, and I looked into it. In the late 1800s, there was a. Now period- wait a second. I want before you go and before yeah. you go there. This is what I would tell the, the I, counselor. To I know. I know. Counselor. Before you go there, I want to make sure we clarify that point. Yeah. So for our listeners, and uh, so, born again believer can experience attractions or temptations to a person of the same sex, yes. and those temptations and attractions are sin. I, I think. I think that's that. That has to be said. They are sin. Yes. And, and I think this is where the church today is missing this conversation. And, and, and we'll, uh, again, we're running out of time. But I kind of want to keep talking because we've got some good stuff to go through. It's to be able to be a, a Christian and to stand in the grace of Christ and say, I am experiencing a temptation and that temptation itself is sin. Doesn't mean that you then lived your whole life whipping yourself and beating yourself up. No, it means you stand confidently before the throne of grace. You repent of the temptation. You go before Jesus. You say, God, I repent. I just had a fleeting temptation, and I give that over to you. I don't want that anymore. Would you, would you, would you, would you heal my heart, heal my mind? And thank God for Jesus Christ's blood on the cross because all my, my sinful desires and temptations have been crucified on the cross, and I'm no longer found guilty. The temptations themselves are sin, Yes. But we stand in the grace of Jesus. You hit it right. And, and, and that distinction has to be said because right now we're living in a culture where the church is afraid to say that the temptations themselves are sin. No. All temptation flows from the heart. The temptations are sin. Let's just say it. But then we move forward. We say, okay, now what do we do with it? We mortify it. We stand in the grace of Jesus. And that involves maybe changing how we dress, what we look on TV, where we work out at the gym. I've come to the point that I realize that not only same-sex attraction, any any desire of the flesh is my greatest enemy. Mm. And if you don't look at same-sex attraction as your greatest enemy and the biggest defrauder of your life, that's what drives me crazy with Revoice. It is so dangerous. All right, wait, you're jumping with Revoice. Okay, let's transition here. I think we've had a great, we're in an hour 18, okay? And and so this is a, we'll call this a podcast extended. I usually try to keep to an hour. I want to talk about culture. So we talked about your story. I think we've talked about, um, we, we've talked some some good ideas just around, you know, I think into a murky area where Christians are afraid to even process. They're, they're afraid to, I think, I think we provided some good foundation for folks. We're living in a hyper-sexualized culture. Not only hyper-sexualized, but the LGBTQIA+, the acronym just keeps growing. That agenda is so prevalent in everything from our preschools to our elementary schools to our libraries to target to the laws that are passed you name it It, everywhere you go you're bombarded by it and to think otherwise outside of that agenda is to be labeled a bigot bigot, right i've done a number of episodes on this we talk about this regularly in the church 
And I would love your thoughts on this. Now, obviously, we can go in a lot of different directions here. How did we get to that place? Okay. How, how do we get to a place where a culture is so saturated that if you do not affirm a f- the full sexual deviant uh, spectrum of everything, and we're talking, I mean, we're talking drag shows with kids, having kids go up and pet drag clo- people wearing thongs. Like, if you don't affirm that, you are the problem. How... Well, first of all, as you look at that, first of all, like, what are your thoughts of that having come from the homosexual community for a big part of your life? But also, how did we get here? Okay, I learned this from Rosario. The the father of this nonsense, (laughs) sin, is Sigmund Freud, a God hater, and his contemporaries. People don't know this history. This is so good. He hated God, and he believed that there was no objective truth. And so, this makes me so angry. And so he and his contemporaries came up with this idea that your feelings are your markers of personhood. So if, and he created the idea of sexual orientation, a God hater. And so if that's, he created two species of people that do not exist. He created heterosexual and homosexual. He created those two words. Mm-hmm. And so according to him, your feelings were the determinants of who you are as a people. That, as a person, that lay dormant for decades. Now it's right here. And because, I, I'm sorry. Well, not only your feelings, but Freud. For Freud, the center of the human experience was the sex drive. And satisfying it. And satisfying it. Yes. From, from infancy, yes. he equated breastfeeding of an infant to, uh, to sexual gratification in the infant stage. And, and then pushed for uh, the teaching for early, early children to, to, to experience masturbation and all these kinds of... Why? Because he, he wanted to push, this is Freud, he wanted to push this idea that the sexual experience is the center of the human experience. Yes. And, and so, you know, I've tried to share that with people and, and leaders back in Ohio. It's like their eyes glazed over. I said, you need to have a rationale. When your kids come home from school, and you're a Christian family and they're going to a secular school or even if not what they hear on TV, they need, they need to know that where this is coming from is a man who hated God. And that, that simple rationale, I think, will help to get people that we, we want to throw our mind away. It's always the devil. We're rebuking the devil. And rather than taking, looking, we have to know where this came from. I want to share this too real quickly. I didn't, I had no idea what non-binary meant. One morning I was on YouTube and there was a guy named Peter Jones. He had played with the, with the Beatles. He's an older guy now. He was talking about neo, um, neo-paganism. The word non-binary comes from an ancient Sanskrit word, advaita. I'm not, probably not saying it right. A-D-V-A-I-T-A. It means not to or not second. It, it is the foundation of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, which I never heard before, where, where these religions believe that there is no distinction. God is not separate from his creation. We are not separate from the trees. That's where all this stuff came from. And then in December, I heard... Um, Alistair Begg uh, unpack Romans 1 and saying paganism, because of paganism, homosexuality is not causal. Causal is consequential. It's the result of paganism. Mm. God turned people over to to defame their bodies mm. because they 
they Romans rejected one. him. That's where we are in America. We are seeing paganism carried out, and the result of that, and like he said, the, these actions are not the wrath of, causing the wrath of God. They are the wrath of God. And I tell you what, the church better get this straight, because when, when this pulls to the point where they, they don't want us to, to, be, to, to become into a detente with them. They want us gone. Yeah. And if we're not telling our church members where this came from and how the, the crap, the evilness that their, their kids are hearing in school, if we don't wake up, we're not going to be ready when you and I are going to be thrown in jail. You know, so... Oh, that makes me... I'm sorry. I'm so passionate. <laughs> it drives me crazy. How, how, how let's, church let's, leaders can just not do this. Well, let's, let's do this. So one of, this is one of the reasons for the podcast, right? Because our people need equipping. Christians need equipping on these yeah, topics. Okay. Let's go back to Freud for a second. Um, I'm going to read to you just a couple sections of Freud. <laughs> this is from Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So right. I'll give you a little bit more insight into Freud. Yeah. People don't realize that the, the way that society works oftentimes is downstream from a couple other factors. Artists, for example, yes. uh, politicians, um, the church, the society oftentimes runs downstream, especially in what once was a Christian culture. How the church goes, society will oftentimes go, but also philosophy. Philosophers, you know, people don't realize the, the things they think and they write end up shaping culture. Freud, as a philosopher, if you'll put him as a philosopher, he had these thoughts of hypersexualization that flowed, and we'll, I'll say this in a minute, from Karl Marx. But listen to some of this from Freud. This is uh, Carl Truman writing, and he says, But if children and infants are sexual from birth, then to be human is always to be sexual, even prior to the onset of puberty. As Freud makes sexual desire fundamental to human happiness, one might go so far as to say that sexuality is the primary and most important part of being a human. I'm going to skip a bit here. He says, oh, uh, it informs taste of fashion. Uh, it, he goes on. But as routine and as common as an assumption as childhood sexuality now is, this sexualization of childhood and even infancy is a relatively recent and profoundly revolutionary phenomenon and owes more to Freud than to, than to any other individual thinker. We could go on and read that whole section. What we need to realize is what we're seeing on our streets, what we're seeing in these laws, what we're seeing in just culture as a whole, the hyper-sexualization of children intentionally pa uh, painted as a human rights issue. That's the thing. The, the painting on it is this is a human rights issue. How do we get there? That is Karl Marx wrapped up in a new wrapper. Karl Marx, basic philosophy of Karl Marx, there's those with power and those without. And the job of, uh, the, the job of socialism, the job of Marxism, is to, f uh, to deconstruct the power structures and rearrange them to share the power. For Marx, it was wealth, right? How do you, how do you share the wealth? But what you do is you have, to, you have to have a revolution. And what was the number one thing that stood in the way of the revolution for Marx? It was, well, one, it was Christianity. But two, it was that great thing that flowed from Christianity, which was the nuclear family. For Karl Marx, it was the destruction of the nuclear family, which was necessary to see the, the, re, the rebalance of power, the rebalance of wealth. That's also BLM. Which is, and when, <laughs> let's go there. So, and we've talked about this in the podcast before. So Black Lives Matter as an organization came out and said, we are trained Marxists. Yes. That was their own quote. Yes. We are trained Marxists who know, and then um, this is me now ad-libbing after that quote, but basically what they were saying is, we are causing a Marxist revolution to redistribute the power. And what was on their manifesto? 
it was hatred for the nuclear family. I saw that. I saw that on the on the on the BLM head uh, on their website. What are we seeing now in the transgender conversation? Same thing. The, the conversation is how do we remove the rights, the roles, and the responsibilities of the parent, place it at the child level, and give the state the responsibility. We, okay, let's just keep saying this. Give the state the responsibility to protect the child's, quote, identity. So if a child in a public elementary school comes to their guidance counselor says, I, you know, I'm a biological male, but I think I'm a girl, um, now the law is try not to, like, have the, 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 the state-run school not tell the parents that and to help the child. I know. In California, a law was just passed. In fact, I was going to do a whole episode on this. A, cal- a law was just passed that if a, if a parent of a child now does not affirm the child in their, in their desire to child become abuse. transgender, it can be considered child abuse to the degree that the child can be removed from the parent's home. Yes. Where does this come from? It's the idea that the state is a better parent of the child than the parent. This has played out already. I mean, it, it, people don't realize how history works. This has played out in Hungary. This played out in Russia. This played out in Russia. The entire communist Russian regime was built on the premise. I mean, it built on a number of premises. It was built on Marx, but it was built on the premise that parents don't know how to parent their children. The state needs to parent their children. They, they tried it, and it failed. It didn't just fail a little bit. Millions of people died in the revolution. It was, we're talking about actual, like, let's try this wild experiment of Marxism. It didn't work. We're living in it right now. We are. And, and, and I'm just, real quick, while I, have, while I have a second. Then we gotta go, I know. You, you said it so well. It's not just pastors that need to speak against this. Pastors do. Pastors need to speak and be bold and be courageous and take a position, stand on the word of God, decry Marxism for what it is. He was an atheist. Um, Richard Wormbrandt wrote a book called Marx and Satan that exposes that he was actually a Satanist. Another recent book was written, I think, in the early 2000s, exposing more details on what Wormbrandt brought up about Marx. Not only are his uh, philosophy rooted in atheism in a godless society— but the fruit that came from it that we're now seeing spread through, through Freud, through guys like Kinsey, through the hypersexualization we're experiencing in our culture, it's rooted in godlessness. And if Christians don't at least take the time to educate themselves, and this children. is why we're having this conversation, so we can think about it in a godly way. A guy like you has so much to teach us because you've kind of been on the inside. You've seen this thing for what it is. As a Christian, too. As a Christian. And and you've seen the goodness of Jesus, the transformation in your own life of what Christ can do to a heart, to a mind, to a soul, to the affections, to the temptations. And you're here to say, I've looked in the darkness of this, and Christ is better. And But now it's for Christians to say, are we willing to have a little bit of backbone and speak against some of the ridiculousness coming up? And by and large, what I find is that that most churches and most Christians don't want to speak into it. Well, you know what I'm finding out too, and you're right, and I'm, I maybe, I don't know what you think about this. Let me real quickly say, what's really helped me, and I don't want to say the, put these people up on pedestals, R.C. Sproul, the, the reform people. How Another thing I would tell anybody that wants to learn how to deal with sin in their lives who's a believer is to grow in the knowledge of God. Yes. To know his whole... That Hosea 4 verse. Yeah, and, and I think that... That what we've created in the church is a Romans seven culture. The good that I want to do, I don't do. It's a it's a roller coaster, sinning, confessing, sinning, confessing. And I've had people tell me before, "Oh, Denny, you're too hard on yourself." Look look at Paul had that problem, and I've said that before too. 
But you said a couple of weeks ago, we're called, you, you said a word I, I haven't heard in decades, piety. Yeah. And when, Beautiful word. Romans 7 is not, it's not the normal Christian life. Romans 8 is. Mm. That was, that's, what need, that's what I would tell somebody. And so, and, and, and how can, I know this sounds horrible, but how can a pastor or a leader take people to what we're talking about or unpack Romans 6, 7, and 8? That's really my book, Romans 6, 7, and 8, if they're not applying it in their own lives. Yeah. Dennis, so good. You know, we only briefly touched on Marx and Freud, and you said the word revoice conference. I actually think it might be worth our time at some point in the future to do a full episode where we just talk about that and kind of work through some of the nuances of that. Um, But man, oh man, thank you for being here today. This has really been a blessing. There's so much more I know you could share. Um, Again, your book is called Glorified Rubble. Rebuilding the True You, by, and the, the, my pen name is Patrick Laporte. I had to change everything in it. Well, now I, don't, I didn't want to do that. But now I could talk about that I had worked in the Chicago schools. I couldn't name where I was, where I lived, the schools I went to, or anything like that. But so. thanks for being here today. Yeah. Thank you for listening. I do hope and pray that this equipped you, that this served you well, um, and that you're able to think rightly on the Word of God and on Scriptures, and as you look at our culture, how to navigate this faithfully. If you like what you listen to, give us a five-star rating, share it, pass it on. Um, And I, Lord willing, will get a chance to chat with you again next week.